Okay, so tonight's Dharma talk is about um, the precepts. And last month I talked about the refuges, taking refuge, and what the refuges are at the level of outer, inner, and secret. And this comes from Tibetan Buddhism, where often they will refer to things in terms of their outer, inner, and secret. Although this particular teaching um, I developed myself, this isn't specifically from Tibetan Buddhism, but this concept of outer, inner, and secret can really help us um, deepen our understanding of something like the precepts, which is often, um, it can often be done in a way that's very rote. Often at the beginning of retreats, we will take, we'll chant the refuges and the precepts and um, the, the precepts are done on retreat in part to create a safe space for everybody on retreat and have common, common agreements. But really the, the larger purpose of the precepts within, within Buddhism is to, um, to service training principles. So they're, they're not like commandments the way that many of us who were raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition have commandments where if we don't do them, we're sinful or we're going to, you know, go to hell or something like that. In Buddhism, the precepts are really intended as training principles. So they're, they're not, they're not seen the same way. They're really something that, um, I like to use them as ways of, of bringing consciousness to my everyday life. And, uh, once a year, I mean, I, I do this ongoing, but once a year I formally do this usually in the week, be, you know, around the end of the year, um, where I will look at the past year and places where I feel that, uh, I was really, um, incongruence with my practice and how I was living my life and, and where I was, where I was on, where I might have, you know, not felt that I was really, uh, doing as well with that as I would like to and would like to give more focus or maybe there's an area of life that I can feel I want to go to the next level and then will have an intention for the following year to really, um, be be more in touch with how I'm living my life in that way. And some of the the things I've looked at in, in this regard over the years is, is eating, you know, eating vegetarian or eating animal products or other ways of eating, um, consumption of media, how much, how much, um, Inner, you know, internet media am I engaging in? Like the news. I've gone on and off of times when I only looked at the news every two weeks to now where I'm, I'm looking at it every day for two years with the pandemic and other things going on. Um, even something like fishing. You know, I know Buddhists who fish and they don't think about that as, is that killing? 
Well, technically, yeah, but is that different than eating meat that's under a wrapper at the grocery store? So, you know, the way that I see the precepts, they aren't really about absolutes of right and wrong. They're more useful if we undertake them in such a way that it brings consciousness to our life and how we're um, and how we're living mostly off the cushion. And the relationship of the precepts to on the cushion is that if we're living our life in such a way that we're, you know, we're having a lot of regrets that we're ruminating about, things that we did that were unskillful that we wish we hadn't done, or things that we wish we had done, like having a, a, you know, a, a conversation to repair a relationship maybe, or apologizing if we were unskillful or following a dream that we didn't pursue out of fear. It could be, you know, any of these kinds of things. If we're ruminating about those and don't feel congruent, that's really going to take us away from our, our practice on the cushion. So it's very practical for our practice in another way. Um, but it, it really allows us to continue to deepen how we're living in relationship to the deepest inner experiences that we have uh, on the cushion, on retreat, or in our daily practice, how well are we living that? Or is there a way we could live that more so that we would have a greater sense of congruence and integrity? So um, taking them doesn't mean you're, you know, committing to be a Buddhist, but a lot of Buddhists do uh, follow the precepts or use them. And there's two versions. There's the retreat and or monastic version and then there's the householder version so I'll I'll go through some of the differences there when I go through them um on retreat normally we do the first five they're not really optional um and if one is doing it's known as eight precepts in Theravadan Buddhism where if we do all eight then we're not eating after the noon meal and sometimes like when I did my long retreats with Paok Sayadaw, he required eight precepts. So everybody was doing that. Um, but there's actually the seventh and eighth precept are quite interesting if we, if we understand them from a perspective of what they're intended for. So on my retreats, I have people, uh, we do all eight precepts and if people aren't, if they are eating the evening meal, then they just are silent when we chant the sixth precept about not eating afternoon. So um, so there's, you know, there's a way to relate to the precepts that we can understand them in a more modern context that's actually quite relevant. So I'm going to go through uh, all of that. And one of the things I love about the precepts when they're chanted um, is uh that they connect us to a lineage of Buddhists that goes back all the way to the day of the Buddha. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have chanted the precepts every single day since that time. And they're doing it right now as we're sitting here. There are Buddhas somewhere on the planet chanting the precepts. And we do that. We do it in Pali. And I really love doing it because we're, you know, we're, we're not that traditional these days in the Western Sangha. And it's a way that we can really 
um, honor the tradition and um, and be connected to Buddhists all over the world from all different eras who have done the very same thing that we're doing when we when we chant the precepts. So um, so I'll just say what the precepts are, and then I will go through each one and how we can really go deeper with our understanding of the precepts as training principles and understand them beyond just that sort of common rote understanding that often is, you know, how it's done at the beginning of a retreat. Usually at the beginning, we don't, you know, we're not really there for the precepts in particular, so it isn't usually given a lot of attention. But it really, you know, it can be undertaken as a practice in itself in a way. And on my year-long mentoring program, we spend a month on sila, and the precepts are part of sila, of looking at how we're living. Are we living, as Kamala Masters and Steve Armstrong say, are we living in harmony without regret? So I like that as a way of understanding sila. And there's there's more to sila than just the precepts, but they can be a, a great um, tool for working with sila, with our our wholesome living. So the householder precepts, and these are from my book, Practicing the Jhanas, but, you know, of course, they're in Buddhism. I'm just using this wording. So the, the first is um, I take the precept to refrain from harming living creatures, living beings. The second, to refrain from taking that which is not given. The third, to refrain from harming others through sexual activity. The fourth, to refrain from incorrect speech. On retreat, that's usually noble silence. The fifth is to refrain, refrain from clouding the mind by consuming intoxicating drinks and drugs that lead to carelessness or heedlessness. And on retreat, also the, with the, the um, third precept where we are celibate during retreat. And then um, the other precepts, if we go to six, seven, and eight, six is to refrain from eating after the Forbidden time, which is after the noon meal. Um, seven, well, I'll, I'll save seven and eight for later because they're kind of charming. Okay, so um, so the first precept is really, we could say at, at its most um, uh, worldly outer level, it's about not killing, about not harming. And... Um, we can look at this in terms of being vegetarian, you know, not eating animal products in which animals were killed for the food. Um, and at the same time, there's a reality of not killing that, you know, if I walk outside or even probably inside, I'm, I'm killing bacteria that are on the ground. You know, it's it's really impossible not to kill anything ever just being in a physical body as a human. So, and there, the, the precepts are used in all three Buddhist lineages, Theravadan, uh, Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. So, you know, Zen and Tibetan Buddhism have them. In Tibetan Buddhism, I remember the first time I went to a Tibetan retreat. Has anyone else been to a Tibetan retreat? Yeah, well, anyway, I was so shocked when the first time I went and I went in for breakfast the first morning and 
you know, I've been going to Theravadan retreats, which are pretty much 100% vegetarian. And there was not one, but three kinds of breakfast meat. And the smell, the bacon, the ham, the sausage, you know, I just was like, what is going on here? You know, uh, well, in Tibet, they don't have enough vegetables to live on. They have to eat yaks. So they bring in non-Buddhists to kill the yaks and then they eat them. So, you know, I mean, there are a lot of different understandings. I know a lot of Buddhist teachers who eat meat. I've gone personally from having many years as a vegetarian to realizing I had to have more protein. So now I do eat meat. So it's not, this isn't about being absolutist about what we should do. It's really about feeling into yourself as to what's right for you. And um, like I've gone in, you know, in later years where this was possible to do to only buying, I don't really buy meat. It's more if I'm out, but one can buy meat from animals that didn't suffer through how they were treated. You know, they weren't in cages, they were free range and other things. So they're, you know, even within something like how we eat, um, there are levels that can have more harm or less harm. So these are the kinds of things at the outer level. On the inner level, we could look at killing as something where we're really, um, and harm, being self-harm or harm for others. And this really is pointing to the defilement within Buddhism, the, the hindrance slash defilement of aversion, and in particular anger and hatred. So at, a, at an inner level, we can really be in touch with and, and monitor, am I allowing a certain kind of um leaning into a sense of anger and hatred towards myself or towards others. Am I, you know, on the cushion, we can see these things, but off the cushion, you know, there can be a way, something like anger, like why would a person have anger? Well, if we're really in touch with anger, if we use vipassana to really feel, okay, what's that anger really like? It kind of feels good sometimes. You know, there can be a certain... Um, self-righteousness that can happen with anger where, uh, it feels like we're, we're right. And there can be something that feels good in that. But ultimately, if we feel more deeply, anger has a sense of a defilement to it. It, it feels, it, it, there's something in it that doesn't feel, um, aligned. So are we monitoring ourselves for that? Or are we just letting ourselves run amok in places that we really feel we're justified in the anger? Because ultimately, the anger is actually hurting us. Most of the time, the other person may not know, or if they do, it's a short amount of time. So, um, so this is really working with anger at the inner level. Am I aware of when I'm going into anger or hatred in a way that I'm not, I'm just letting it kind of spin out or ruminate? And then the secret level. This is really um, about non-separation and not cutting ourselves off from our deeper nature, from the ground of being. 
And many of you, I'm sure, have seen this little demonstration that I give of, you know, the piece of paper over with the four fingers. And this is how we normally see reality from the conventional view is that we're all separate and we're separate from everything in, in the physical realm. But then if you, you know, if the paper isn't there, we can see at this deeper level, if we're in touch with what we are at the deeper level, there's really, you know, where does the individual finger end and the hand begin? The hand is really so much more fundamental than the finger. And if I move my finger, I can feel it all the way down into my hand. So, you know, when we're in touch with our deeper nature, there's a reality of non-separation that um, when we're in touch with that, it's really hard to carry a lot of anger or hatred towards another because that sense of separation, it may, we may be separate at a physical level, although quantum physicists are now even challenging some of that. Um, but at the level of our deeper nature of that mystery from which we are all and everything is manifesting, even the thing or person we're angry with. There isn't any separation. So at the secret level, we're really, it's pointing to cutting ourselves off from our deeper nature. So then precept number two is about, in the old way of saying it, not stealing. But even at a more subtle level at the outer, not taking what is not given freely or offered. Um, and one of the modern places this can come up is copyright, especially of digital media. You know, it's pretty easy to pass things around and, and think, well, who is it really hurting? It's not really hurting anybody. But it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't freely offered, then there can be a lot of gray areas of what what's really right there, what's uh, what's in integrity of not not taking or you know passing around things that aren't offered. Um, also, there can be uh, a certain kind of way that we can feel we're entitled to something that. Um, that is more about our own assumptions of what we're entitled to than it is about what is really happening. Even something like, you know, having to wait in line a long time because there aren't enough staff somewhere. Well, that's an assumption that I should be receiving a fast whatever. And to be in touch with, um, Am I wanting something that wasn't really mine to claim? At the inner level, then, which is really what I was pointing to and leading towards, is, is not indulging in, in, first of all, envy and jealousy, where someone else has something that we, uh, we want. And or if, even if we don't do anything about it, are we, are we pining? Are we feeling it's not fair? Are we, um, you know, are we suffering because of 
And this is pointing at the defilement of desire and greed is how it was traditionally talked about greed. Am I in a loop where no matter what I have, I always want more. I'm never satisfied or maybe I can be satisfied for a while. But then when the novelty wears off, then I want something else that uh, I don't have. So are we really you know, in touch with when we get into suffering about not having something, are we letting the desire defilement cause us to suffer? I remember once when I, when I was first studying with Jack Cornfield, he said, one of the easy ways to be happy is to want what you have and to not want what you don't have. I always thought that was, you know, it's pretty simple, but, um, it's there's a real deep truth there that's pointing to this um, precept. And then at the secret level, again, when we look at the the hand and and when we go beyond our sense of separation, from this view, we really have everything. From a view of non-separation, there really isn't anything that we aren't one with at a deeper level when we're really in touch with that ground um we are one so we don't need to get to be content we don't need to get something that feels like other in order to be content i mean yes there are things we need for our survival and to have a certain level of well-being so it's not to say that that isn't valid but um the whole uh spinning of the ego, which is basically a getting machine, um, to where we can't really just be content with how things are. At this level of our deeper nature, at the level of the secret version of the precept, we really can be content with how things are, as Jack said, to want what we have and to not want what we don't have. The third precept then is about not harming ourselves or others sexually, about being responsible with our sexuality. And, you know, there are a lot of different versions of this at the outer level maintaining whatever commitments we have to those that we are sexual with or in a in a love relationship with um and also ourselves are we doing things sexually that are harmful to us or that uh we don't want to be doing doing out of obligation nowadays i do have worked with a number of people many people and on retreat this comes up where people have some level of um addiction to fantasy or porn you know it's so it's so prevalent out there and it's so designed to just grab our survival our instinctual drive the sexual drive that's so hardwired into our biology and um and this is another form of harming ourselves or others if if what it's doing is harmful and is um, degrading others or demeaning others in some way. So this is getting more to then the inner level of this precept is about 
are, am I indulging in fantasy or again, in, in, even if I'm not, you know, doing something or watching something, is there an internal fantasy going on? And, and one of the classic examples of this is the Vipassana romance that's often talked about on retreats where people will, you know, go on a retreat. And I remember when I first started doing long retreats and, and one of the teachers was talking about the Vipassana romance and, and I just thought, does that really happen? But, you know, it does. It happens a lot. And, and as a teacher, you know, I, I hear this at times and it's, it's part of a habit that people have. Sometimes it's even married people. They're not going to act on it. They just like having the fantasy and somebody will go on a retreat and, you know, at first few couple of days, they see somebody kind of interesting and then, you know, their mind goes to, well, maybe we'll meet after the retreat. And as the, if the retreat's long enough in their mind, they've now had a relationship, they've gotten married. Maybe if they're young enough, they had a couple kids, you know, and then later in the retreat, the person asks a question that they don't like so much, you know, and so then they eventually get divorced from the person, the retreat ends, and now they can't stand the person, you know, and they've never even talked at all. So, you know, this is some people spend their whole retreat doing things like this. So this is a place for us to, you know, it's just an example of that kind of indulging in, in, in some kind of addictive or, um, our convulsive behavior that really is pointing to the desire defilement again. And even engaging in other kinds of fantasies where we're ta- being taken away from the reality of things. It's a form of entertainment and escape that's really ta- taking us out of the present moment. And then at the secret level of this precept, There's a way that when we are really in touch with our ground, one of the, one of the dimensions of, uh, non-duality that can be experienced when we're in contact with our deeper nature in a really, in a direct way is a certain kind of dynamism, uh, a kind of, um, flow of the creativity of the ground of being. So the absolute, the deathless that's talked about in Theravadan Buddhism is completely still and really empty. It's, it's, it's the deepest, most still kind of um, void almost. Really, it's, it's a void of pure potentiality. But from that comes all of manifestation. So all of form is uh manifest from this emptiness and it's the dynamism of being that is the force that's causing that and i think this is really when when we're doing vipassana at a very deep level and seeing phenomena arising and passing or if we're being in touch with this aspect of non-duality in hinduism they had the shakti you know, the, the creative force of, uh, being. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they have the, the Yabyam pictures where you see the deity in a, a like, in embrace with the male and the female deities in an embrace. And this is really the potential of 
the human experience when we are allowing, when the flow of dynamism is happening through us, it can actually be quite ecstatic. And people can sometimes experience this on retreat. I have people on retreats experience this all the time. And it's like the dynamism is flowing through our location. It can be very rapturous, actually. Because what we're in touch with is that that dynamism that's manifesting you sitting here right now, that dynamism, when it's unobstructed, there's a, there can be a really blissful um, experience that happens because we're in touch with that creative force of the grounded being. I mean, the act of sexuality is creating a new person. No wonder it's so ecstatic. You know, I mean, there's something really, um, uh, there's a sense of creative manifestation that as humans, we can create a new human. And that's pretty amazing. So at a spiritual level, at the secret level of our spiritual practice, when we are, when the personality conditioning isn't obstructing that flow of being as much and our, our deeper nature can flow through through sometimes we can actually experience that as a certain kind of rapture or a subtle sense of bliss and when that happens we're in touch with this with this dynamism so this precept in some ways is really pointing to that deeper possibility of being an individual consciousness that is in embrace with the mystery and isn't obstructing the natural flow of that in, in our location and through our, our life as it's being lived. The fourth precept is about um, not basically, if it's at its most worldly, it's about not, not lying. Being, being honest, um, and oftentimes this, you know, this encompasses all of the wise speech. So it can be very broad. It can be very, um, you know, one can spend their whole life working with this precept. Sometimes in Buddhism, it's talked about as being um, truthful, useful, and timely. So is what I'm saying truthful? Is it useful? So is it not just superfluous like gossip or something just not just talking for the sake of it and is it timely is it said at a time when it's of most um, benefit to the, the person and so this is really about there's a lot of aspects about wise communication and how we're doing that but at it's it's most basic we could look at it as as this truthful useful and timely at an inner level, this is has to do with our self-talk and our, you know, are we monitoring ourselves for going over and over our self-talk about who we are, what we are, who, who others are, our story, the story that reinforces the me. And this could be the egoic story, or it could be also the superego, the inner critic that is really about self-judgment. And this 
in my view, this um, precept is really pointing at the defilement of delusion. Are we in touch with the stories that keep us in the ego self, which is really a program? It's it's a compilation of programs that we were given as we were growing up and defense mechanisms, body identification, all of these things that aren't really what we are at a deeper level. So are we allowing ourselves to just let that story run unchecked or are we, you know, stopping it and, and going, no, this, this isn't, this isn't what I am, or at least it's not all of what I am. It's not the deepest level. And then the secret level, this is pointing to the inner silence of the view of reality. And in Tibetan Buddhism, the, this idea of the view, it's really this view that I've been talking about of our deeper nature. Part of that deeper nature, especially like at the level of the absolute, is, is silent. There's so much silence there. And this is part of why we do retreats in silence is to cultivate that. But if we're just letting our inner dialogue run unchecked, there can't be any silence there. So this precept is really pointing to the possibility of allowing for that silence internally so that that deeper nature that really is beyond the conceptualization and that, that constant running of the me that keeps the, the ego and the self in going, can that be interrupted by silence? That is really a big part of our deeper nature. The fifth precept is about not um, being being heedless with intoxicants. And so, again, you know, I know many Buddhist teachers who drink alcohol. And um, I myself have had long periods where I abstained from that eight-year period, a six-year period, where for me it was really the right um, wise action to be completely free of any intoxicants. And then there are other times when there's an edge of of being wise about that. So this isn't to say this one should never do that as a lay person, as a monastic, there's a prohibition there. But what's the relationship to it? And is it done uh, out of to a level that can cause self or other harm? And a lot of people see this as really about desire, but I actually see that this is really pointing more toward the delusion defilement. Because when we are intoxicated at a level where we're heedless, we're in delusion, really. We're we're escaping. There's an escapism that is really a big part of doing this to a level of heedlessness. So um, that's what's being pointed at here. And at an inner level, are we beyond intoxicants? Are we deluding ourselves with this, you know, being addicted to the surface level of existence, to the separate me, to the physical realm? 
And are we ignoring the realms that are deeper of what we are? Also delusion, the delusion defilement. Uh, a lot of times I get asked about this and one way of being, you know, asking ourselves, because we all have some degree of all of the defilements and hindrances. Are we able to really see things as they are? Are there things in where our life that we know that we really don't want to see, that we're pretending aren't there because it's hard to actually be with them? And there's a way a lot of times we, we know we're deluding ourselves and we're doing it because it's hard to be with that thing. So at an inner level, this is really about being really true to ourselves and to the reality of what's happening and being able to, you know, be in contact with that and bring wisdom to it instead of having to dull ourselves because it's too much. At the secret level, then, this is, you know, I was pointing to this part of it, not becoming un- intoxicated with the superficial level of reality, which is really the ego self and the physical realm of feeling that that is what's ultimate and that there isn't anything more fundamental than the physical realm, than this body, than the personality conditioning that there is something when we know ourselves as our deeper nature, we know that there's something that's actually more fundamental. And this is, you know, this is the core of Buddhism, that there is a relative level of reality, but there's an absolute level of more fundamental level that we can be in touch with that goes beyond even our physical life. And am I staying true to my deeper nature? Am I not neglecting that? because I'm so caught up and wrapped up in the physical level of my life, of the things that will arise and pass away? Am I giving all of my attention to that? Or am I really um, honoring that deeper part of reality that's actually a lot more fundamental and core to what I am? And since it's almost 7.20, I think I'll stop there and see if there are any questions or comments. And if there aren't, I'll do the other three um, precepts. But there are, if there are, I'd like to make time for that. John. Hi, Tina and everybody. Um, just this evening while we were sitting, I found myself in a state of mind of... Uh, that wasn't compatible or wasn't, it didn't feel like I should be meditating in this state of mind. And so I opened my eyes um, and changed my body position and sat still and, and was able to release some of that energy. But since it's so immediate it, it and I recognizing it as some kind of defilement of my practice that I was doing, um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I feel like pulling myself out a little bit helped level it out. And I'm wondering 
Do you have any other thoughts or suggestions, experience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Next month, I'm actually going to be talking about um, working with hindrances and defilements. So I'm going to defer the Brahma Viharas for a month to, to actually delve into that more. But it sounds like what you did was skillful means. Sometimes it's it's skillful to, you know, you realized it. So that's a, a great thing that you realized this was happening instead of just getting lost in it and and being, you know, out of touch with the fact that that's what was happening. You you recognized it. So that's the first thing. And anytime we we recognize that a hindrance or defilement is happening and we can identify that, we've got a little space from it. You know, even if it's really capturing our attention, just having that little bit of space is enough to recognize that there is a part of us that isn't that. There's a part of what you are that is seeing the defilement. You know, so what is the part that's seeing the defilement? Because it's not the defilement if it's seeing it. You know, so this already gives you some space from it. And sometimes doing, you know, sounds like you did kind of a pattern interrupt that allowed you to just get out of it. So I think that's fine. I mean, in each of the practices, we we have different methods for working with hindrances and defilements. In the Samatha, if we can, we you know, if we're doing the Anapanasati, we come back to the breath. In Vipassana, we can actually explore what that is. We might even feel like if it's, you know, desire or something, if we're wishing we had something, um, feeling, okay, what does that actually feel like? You know, so there's a way we can either come back to the breath in Vipassana or we can actually explore what it is without identification. And then in the Brahma Viharas, we might apply a certain Brahma Vihara to that, um, depending on what's going on. So, um, but you, you interrupted it and that Sounds sounds really skillful. How did how did it work? Um, it, I I think it worked well. Um, I kept on coming back to the breath, uh, and it just felt like it was getting buried. Like I I couldn't come back to the breath often enough or frequently to keep this other stuff. So I felt like I needed to take more action, and I do think it was effective and. You know, maybe I agree that noticing it is a big part of it, but this may be the first time I've really done it while meditating and noticing. So yeah, that's great. It's a little confusing, but I feel confident and yeah. Now that you, that's that's great, and you know there are many ways to work with hindrances and defilements depending on the practice, depending on what's happening. So I'll get into that more next month as well. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks. Others, Karen. Okay, I was trying to figure out how to lower my hand now that I figured out. (laughs) It's lowered. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I know you've reminded us several times about doing a yearly review, and every time you say it, I think, oh, that's that's of course, you know, it's kind of a no brainer. Um, and yet I've never done it. And I'm just thinking I really need to, to do that. And, and probably using the precepts as a framework 
would be a good way. And I've appreciated so many of the more subtle points that, you know, that have been brought up. One thing that I have uh, been grappling with myself for the last couple of years um, in light of the, you know, all the education that's been done about our, our, our uh, systemic racism in this country and, the, you know, the fact that it was founded on slavery and free labor and um, reparations have never been made. And, and even worse, if, like in my case, being white, and having benefited for many years off the opportunities that I've had because I was white, um, not not just because, but a lot of them I would not have had if I hadn't have been, and also the whole aspect of multi generational wealth that you know white people have controlled for the last 450 years. Um, and now even in the legal system, it, there's still so many things in education, housing. So in that first precept, that's what came to my mind in terms of farming. I mean, I may not be taking an active, uh, doing something actively, but by not doing something proactively, I'm totally harming other people that you know, grew up in a system that was made to benefit people like me. So that's something that I, I, especially in the whole area of multi-generational wealth, when I found out that after World War II, which my dad was in, and my parents were able to buy a house after that, I'm sure using the GI Bill that it wasn't administered to African-American, for instance, soldiers or um, you know, I know my childhood would have been so different if we hadn't have been able to buy that first house. So I think that's, you know, I really like what you said about, you know, it's not like really clear and it's not one way or the other. I mean, right, right. Look at this for a long time. Right. Yeah. It's your, your definition of harm has really been expanded by being in touch with all of these ways that as a white person, you benefited without, you know, maybe having realized that at certain times and now really feeling the impact of that. And, and, um, and sounds like there's remorse or some wish to have you know, to be of benefit or, you know, I'm sort of putting words there, but um, yeah, this is where, you know, to me, there's a lot of subtleties to all of these. And you're really pointing to that, that you're going deep into what does this mean for you? And this is a level of depth of what it means for you. That is, is, um, is meaningful to you. And, and, uh, so just taking this as a, at a rote level, like don't kill, you know, does, wouldn't come close to addressing what you're talking about. And so that's really, to me, the spirit of, of the, all of the precepts. And, you know, you may want to, if you sit with this for a while, you may want to take some particular action. 
or it may be internal work that you're doing to um, to not not perpetuate what has happened in terms of oppression and racism in, in this country that um, is still happening. So, yeah, and it doesn't just have to be at that, you know, at the end of the year. To me, there there have been times when I've just felt like, okay, now is when I want to look, especially at this one precept and, and, um, and there may even be some ways of, uh, I don't know, atoning. Like I, I, when I'm teaching Sila, I always say at the end of that section, at the end of retreats, when I'm talking about going back to your home life, that it's never too late to try and clean up something. Mm. Even if the person that it happened with is deceased, there's a way that if we clean things up on our end, it can have an effect. So, you know, I believe that in some ways there's intergenerational um, remorse that can happen through a lineage just the way that um, intergenerational trauma can happen, that we in some ways are doing work for our ancestors as well on, on both sides of that equation, the harm side and the um, the, the suffering side. So um, you, I don't know what that would look like, but that would be something that you could feel into. Yeah, no, I believe that too, as far as the intergenerational healing. And the other thing I think is really interesting, the way, you know, that you pointed to certain uh, precepts will ha- will have be the defilements are embedded in them and for instance in what I was talking about I mean I think aversion is there you know being white um, there might be this natural like uh, you know wanting to, wanting more I, I actually think it's more greed though you know because uh-huh. anything that the status quo, which benefits me, <laughs> means I have to share more. And so that's kind yeah. of, I have to deal with that. And then the whole delusional aspect that it's not real. Right, right. There are a lot of different defilements that are part of systemic racism continuing. Probably all of them are part of it. If we you know, looked at it from many different angles. We could see all of the hindrances and defilements as part of what's kept that going. And probably a lot of the precepts are like that, where the the defilements are kind of hidden in different ways. Right. Yeah. I was sort of pointing to the obvious one, but, um, but yes, all of them, you know, and, uh, all, all of the three main defilements, you could, you could look at the precepts and they probably each one has some relationship to all of them. There may be one that stands out more than the others, but, uh, but, uh, this is why it's important to work with it ourselves, that there isn't a rote answer. It's really about what is your growing edge around this? Like yours is around the systemic racism when it comes to the first one. And um, so I see we're out of time, but I really would encourage all of you to 
you know, to use these as, as something that can really help keep your practice um, fresh and off the cushion can give us some guidance as to how to work with uh, with the precepts in a modern way. And I'll, I'll just, before I end, go through seven and eight, six, seven and eight, six, the one about not eating afternoon can really be used to um, help us overcome our survival fears that not having enough food, we won't have enough. So even just fasting one day a week or trying to fast once, we can really see there's not much of a chance of starving, but there can be a a sort of compulsiveness that is uh, based in a fear of lack. The seventh precept about not um, entertaining and beautifying ourselves really is pointing to that need for entertainment and and living at that superficial level. And then the eighth eighth precept often talked about as the high and lofty beds precept is really about are we um are we satisfied with how things are and when things don't live up to our expectations uh, do we sort of get into complaining about it and adding that second arrow of suffering when it's not really needed. So um so I wish you all a uh, a productive and and deeper maybe engagement with the precepts as you um, orient to this part of Buddhism. And I will see you next month for uh, this deeper dive into working with the hindrances and defilements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.